My name's Sue Collinson. For anyone who doesn't know me yet, i am actually just forgot my water, so I'm going to grab that. Excuse me. So, as Adrian has already introduced this amazing psalm to us, I'd like us to imagine for a moment, and so imagine with me, if you will, that we, as a congregation, just look around you, just see who, who's around, see how many you are. It's a lovely gathering. Just imagine that all of us are down the hill, down St. James's Lane, at the bottom of the hill, and as a congregation, as a group of people, we are moving up, we're walking up the hill towards this place of worship. And we would be proclaiming, we would be shouting, we'd perhaps be singing this amazing psalm as a body of believers, if you like. And as Adrian has suggested, it would be done, as it were, antiphonally. Lovely word, but it's sort of in parts. So I, as the leader, perhaps, would start by saying, the Lord, that's how it starts in Hebrew, the Lord, the Lord is the one to whom the earth belongs. The Lord is the creator of all things. And then some, one of you in the body of the congregation, as it were, one of you would then ask the question, who, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may come up into God's presence? Who is it that can do that? And then the reply comes, perhaps from the other half of the congregation or from someone else, those who have clean hands and a pure heart, those who seek after God, those who don't look towards idols or other things that they could worship, but those who want to worship God, they can enter in. And then, if you can imagine, as we become closer to church, we realize that there are people in the building and they are waiting for us. And so we shout out to them, lift up you gates, lift up you heads, O you ancient doors. And it's as though we are so excited about the arrival of us into this place that we are asking for the doors to be flung open, prepare the way we're saying. Now, we have to leave our little illustration there uh, in order to go back into time to when this psalm was first written, if you like, or first used, we think. Because we believe that this psalm was written for a particular occasion. And that occasion is recorded for us in 2 Samuel, the book of Samuel, chapter 6. And it's the time when the Ark of the Lord, and the Ark of the Lord wasn't just a sacred object that was made and, and used in worship. The Ark of the Lord for the people of Israel at that time represented God's presence. More than just represented, it was as though God was there in the Ark. And this moment that's recorded for us is when the Ark as it were, the presence of God is being brought back to its rightful place, back to the holy hill, back to Jerusalem, Mount Zion, back to the tent of meeting as it was then. And it had been away for some time. 
And so the coming back of the ark to its rightful place, it was as though God himself was returning to his place. And so it was an amazing moment of joy and celebration. Uh, all the instruments would be out, full volume, lots of singing and shouting. And in fact, we read that David slightly let his hair down and uh, to great consternation to, uh, to his wife. But that's another sermon. Um, if you'd like to know more about that, I would really urge you to listen to Chris, who preached at the Nine, um, because he just preached the most amazing sermon on that story. And uh, it should be um, recorded for us, and it'll be on the website later this week. So just a shout out to Chris for that. But this psalm isn't so much just about us worshipping and how we can join in that celebration of the Lord's presence. This psalm, of course, points to the one to whom we worship, the one whom we worship. And this psalm tells us that the God we worship is king. God is king. And if you look down at your psalms, you'll see the first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2, Describe to us that God is the creator king. He is the one who established the world and fills it. He fills it abundantly and generously. God is the one who gives us all that we need. He is lavish in his provision. And then verses 3 to 6 remind us that God is the holy king. God is the one who is far and above his creatures in terms of character and, and life. He is holy. And as he is so good, we ask ourselves, who can approach him? Who could ever come near to such a holy and righteous God? And we're made aware of our own unworthiness, our own need for cleansing, our own need for purifying. And then finally, the last few verses in the psalm remind us that God is the victorious king. He is the one who has conquered. He is the one who has brought liberation to his captive people. The people of Israel, of course, would be thinking back to the Exodus and the great deliverance of his people from the captivity in Egypt. And we know that God is victorious for us too. The last title of God that Adrian got us to say, Lord Almighty, is translated Lord King of Hosts. The Lord Almighty is, he is the the ruler, as it were, of heaven's armies, the leader of heaven's armies. And that's the time when that title is used. The Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. So these are all wonderful truths that God is king, both as creator and holy and victorious. But there is more. Because I was asking myself, what does that mean for us sitting here today in 2023? What does it mean for us as God's people in this time, in this place, that God is king? Well, we have the great joy and privilege of reading the Old Testament through the lens, if you like, 
of Jesus. We read these ancient words through the word, the word made flesh, Jesus. And so we can see more and experience more and embrace more of the meaning of what it means for God to be king through Jesus. Tom Wright, uh, a great theologian, sorry, it's looking, looking like a book review time, doesn't it? Claire's one and here's one. Um, Tom Wright has written a book uh, called How God Became King, uh, which seems like an interesting title, How God Became King, because God is king. But what Tom Wright is saying in this book is that God showed himself as king, God revealed himself as king through Jesus, through the birth and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus. And not only did he reveal himself as king in the person of Jesus, but he established his kingdom through Jesus. He inaugurated, if you like, his rule, his kingdom in what Jesus did. <clears throat> so we were saying, God is the creator king. And Jesus reveals that when he speaks over the wind and the waves and says, be quiet, be still, and they are. And he reveals that when he creates bread for thousands or gallons of wine at a wedding party he shows that he's the creator king when he heals his broken creatures, when he brings wholeness to those who need it, to restore them to their created glory. God is the holy king. And we know that Jesus was holy above all others. He was the one perfect, sinless human Jesus reveals God's holiness to us. Jesus never bore a grudge. He was never unkind. He was never proud. He never held on to unforgiveness. Jesus was the lamb, the lamb without spot or blemish, the one who was holy enough to offer himself as a sacrifice to make the unworthy worthy. And God is the victorious king. And Jesus shows God as victorious in his death and resurrection. In dying, Jesus took anything and everything that is destructive in this world. Anything that seeks to hold us captive. Anything that seeks to destroy us. And in his death and then in his resurrection, he defeated that final enemy, death. And so Jesus shows us God's victory. And in and through Jesus, God's victory is not just for a single people group in a single time and place, but it is for the whole world. It is universal for anyone who receives it. So what Tom Wright has encouraged me to think about is what does it mean for Jesus to be king? Because if it is truly, if it is true that Jesus was showing himself to be king over our world, over our lives, then that cannot, be, that cannot just stay 
as information in our heads. It's something we need to think about and pray about and act upon. If we truly believe that Jesus is the rightful ruler of this world, then we have to ask ourselves, where do we see his kingdom? Where do we see his rule? And if we don't see it, what are we going to do about it? How is our allegiance to the king going to make a difference? Now, this is a huge question, and each of us in our own individual situations will answer it in our own ways. Maybe you will see God's kingdom coming in your workplace. Maybe there will be a slight change in atmosphere, and you'll begin to think, yes, I can see more of God's values in my organization. Or maybe there's a shift in your family life, and you can begin to be encouraged that God's kingdom is slowly growing in your family. But unfortunately, we all experience times when God's kingdom comes into conflict with the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom that we live in. You know that with a king, you don't get two kings ruling at the same time. You only get one king. And if God is king, there can be no other. But we realize that he isn't ruling supremely and completely and ultimately at this present time. We know, don't we? We only have to switch on the news to know that there is a battle going on, that there is a clash of kingdoms, the kingdom of God's justice and righteousness and compassion and the kingdom of greed and selfishness, of unrestrained consumerism, if you like, materialism, things that are potentially destructive. So our prayer is always, God's kingdom, please come here on earth as it is in heaven. As I've been praying this prayer, as we pray it all the time, I've been challenged about the clash of the kingdoms when it comes to climate justice. I believe that this is where we see a clash of the kingdom of God with the kingdom that we have pretty much grown up with and that we've become used to, the kingdom that we live in. And so I'm going to tell you my story, really, of how God has been speaking to me about what his kingship looks like in my life. And this is my story, and I hope that it will encourage you simply to ask the question, what does it mean for me that Jesus is king? So my story is this. Um, about a year ago, my husband and I were about to fly out to the south of France. Our son was working out there. And we were hearing on, on the news about protesters on the motorway. And some motorways were being shut, disrupting traffic. And we were getting a little bit concerned about how we were going to get to the airport. Uh, my husband made me wake up at about some ridiculous hour, three o'clock in the morning or something, and we took the back roads and, uh, of course, got there in plenty of time, and it was absolutely fine. But at that time, if I am honest with you, 
I didn't really know or understand what these protesters on the motorway were doing. I, uh, if I'm honest, didn't, was quite ignorant actually about what they were asking for or what they wanted. And it was annoying, it was disruptive for Mark and I. But over this last year, I have been deeply challenged by such protesters. And the ones that bothered me so much back then, I've learned from, or not them personally, but I've learned from the protesters as to what it is that they are actually all about. I've learned that they're just asking for one particular thing. They're asking that our government would stop issuing licenses for new oil and gas lines to be built. That's what they are wanting. And I've begun over this last year to appreciate some of their frustration at not being heard. There was a demonstration last April uh, in Parliament Square, and there was probably between about 60 or 90,000 people gathering in Parliament Square for this issue of climate justice. But it wasn't covered in our mainstream media. We didn't really hear about it. That growing frustration. And I'm beginning to see that these protesters, when they speak out and they try to do so uh, as much as they can in non-violent and respectful ways, when they speak out, they're speaking out the voice for justice, the voice of God crying out for justice for the poor and the oppressed. Because, of course, it is the poor and the vulnerable that are always most affected by the climate crisis. I've begun to see that these protesters are standing up for something, something that I believe is in line with the kingdom of God. And by doing so, they're standing against the kingdoms of our world, some of the structures and power, inst powerful institutions that need to be spoken against. Now, none of this learning has been comfortable for me. If you know me, you know I'm not someone who would ever want to cause any offense or disruption. If I was completely honest with you, my idols would perhaps be something like comfort and security. Stability, that is what I like. So I know that for me, this has been a challenging journey and I'm simply sharing it with you as a way to encourage you that God still speaks today and that we can hear him speak because he is king. I've been challenged by the witness of people like the local vicar in Twyford, a clergyman in Twyford who's now retired, he's a retired GP, and he joined Just Stop Oil. And through people like him, I've been made aware of my need to stand up for what I believe King Jesus is asking of me. Because loving Jesus means acknowledging him as king. Who is this king of glory? Jesus, our risen, 
ascended and glorified King, Jesus, our all-creating, all-holy, victorious King. He is the King of glory. Amen.